Morning Star House. Galatians 5:16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkardness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, I hope that y'all are doing well. Thank you to Christina for that wonderful scripture reading. In the event that you didn't hear, we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. And so as you open or load your Bible this morning, got a couple of quick updates. First, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Two, if you are new, uh, we'd love to hang out with you. In fact, let me walk over here. Sup, dude? I'm just at work. What are you doing? Okay. Um, uh, we have these connect cards, right? These connect cards, uh, we'd love to hang out with you, take you out to dinner. We'd love to take you out to lunch or for coffee. But in addition to that, if you'd give us the opportunity to pray for you, we'd love to do that. So please fill out one of these connect cards, whether it's your first time, second time, you've been with us for a while. Uh, leave it in the connect desk and we'll pray for you or we'll connect with you. In addition to that, uh, on the tables, or excuse me, on the chairs, we have a gift for you. That's a Bible, right? Take one with you, hook your friends up, hook your family up, hook them up with the Word of God. We love preaching from God's Word, and so we want to give everyone and anyone uh, the gift of God's Word. Um, I think those are all the updates I have for you. I'll have more or some new things for you later on, but let's dig into our time. Uh, if you are new, uh, we've been journeying through uh, the book of Galatians this fall. We started this book back in September. It's crazy to think. Here we are in December and we're still in Galatians. Uh, and today we're going to be closing out chapter 5, uh, followed by our finishing of this wonderful epistle at the end of the month. So you could say it this way, that we're beginning our descent on Galatians as the year comes to a close. In light of that, I want to begin our time with a brief overview of what we've covered so far. Uh, and I want to do this for, for a couple of reasons. But the first one is, if you're a, a fan of the Apostle Paul, one thing that you'll notice about his letters is that there's always a transition from theological framework to practice, right? In other words, you'll notice, especially in Galatians, that Paul uh, spends a considerable amount of time unpacking some profound theological truth, something about who God is, something about what God has done. He is framing together, creating a foundation of some theological truth. And then at some point in his letters, he transitions from the framework of that theological thought to the practice in other words, he's reminding those that he writes to, this is what we believe. This is who God is. This is what God has done for you in Christ. And now, this is what it looks like in the daily. And we see this regularly in Paul's letters, and that's what we're seeing in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. Additionally, it's really important to have a, a quick overview <clears throat> because it helps to clarify it helps to clarify the why behind chapters 5 and 6. See, if you just start in chapters 5 and 6, you're going to get some really good things out of what Paul is saying. But uh, apart from that, we have come to realize that context is important. Context matters. And so an overview helps us to shape what is going on so that we have a better understanding of the why in these last two chapters. So in brevity, if that exists for me, in brevity, uh, here is my five-point summary. <laughs> I promise I'll go through it quickly. Here's my five-point summary 
on Galatians 1 through 4. And here's what I would say. Have your Bibles handy when it comes to uh, Galatians. We're going to dip back and look at a couple of verses very, very quickly. So here's the first thing. The Apostle Paul is writing to uh, churches in an area called Galatia. It's not just one church, but it's multiple churches. Uh, You can think of it this way, that the the, the Apostle Paul would be writing to the valley, not McAllen, but the valley. So it would be a collective of churches. Um, And in this letter, all of these churches are fairly young. And Paul is, if you haven't picked up, Paul is very passionate in his language toward the Galatians because they have been receiving some persuasion from false teachers. And these false teachers have been saying that the teachings of the apostle uh, were not only incomplete, but they were saying that receiving Jesus by faith alone is actually insufficient. So in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul gives us uh, a quick view as to why he's writing, saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That word different, we've unpacked, means a different nature, something completely in contrast uh, to the gospel of Jesus. Second, uh, as Paul is receiving the news that false teachers are persuading the Galatians, this angers him, not only because these are young churches that he deeply cares about, but it angers him because what was at stake for Paul was the centrality of the gospel. There was no mistake in Paul's love for the people that he is writing to, but more so than his love for them, or his love for them comes out of a deeper love for the gospel, that the very nature of the gospel is that sinners can come to know Jesus through grace alone and by faith alone and not as a result of merit or achievement. Third, Paul spends almost, and you may remember this, spends almost three chapters introducing, defending, arguing and structuring the doctrine of justification by faith alone. A doctrine that is so important that this this doctrine is the one upon which the church stands or falls. That's how incredibly important this doctrine is for us, not just in the context of Galatians, but it's incredibly important for us as a church. This doctrine teaches that an individual is declared right or an individual is declared righteous before God on the basis of faith alone, not merit or achievement. And the implications of this doctrine include, but are not limited to, a status change. That at one point we were orphaned, but now we become sons and daughters. We are adopted by the grace of God into the family of God. That at one point we were at war with God, but now we're at peace with God. One time we were enemies, now we are friends. Our status is completely changed. In addition to that, we receive the forgiveness of our sin through the death of Jesus on the cross in our place. That's what the doctrine of justification teaches, and those are some of the implications that carry with that doctrine. Fourth, The reason this was such a hot-button issue, the doctrine of justification, was because these false teachers were persuading the Galatians to believe that their justification was incomplete. In other words, what they were saying, trying to persuade them with, arguing for, what they were saying is, hey, in order to be truly righteous, I get that Paul shared the gospel with you, but it's incomplete. And so what they're saying is, in order to be truly righteous, in order to be holy, in order to be acceptable before God. What they were teaching is that the Galatians needed to submit themselves to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, that they needed to come back under submission to ceremonial laws, moral laws, dietary restrictions, if they were going to be considered acceptable and holy before God. For these false teachers, the Galatians needed to be Jews before they were legitimate Christians. Fifth, 
Paul has been reminding the Galatians as a result of receiving the news of this teaching, he has been reminding the Galatians about the purpose of the law, that the purpose of the law was good and its purpose served to expose our heart, reveal to us our idols and our depravity, and actually point us to our need for a Savior, to be saved from our sin that we're actually enslaved to what the law proclaims. In addition to that, Paul says that there's only one who fulfilled this law, and his name is Jesus. And as a result, Jesus has set them free. Uh, In turn, he has set us free, free from our bondage to sin. And so Paul's argument is, why on earth would you want to return to that form of slavery? Why would you want to go back to slavish ways if you have been set free? Paul spends time, and this starts in chapter 2, Paul spends time reminding them of their identity in Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself and lo- gave himself, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul reminds them that it was Jesus who bore the penalty of their curse. In Galatians 3, verse 13, Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And as a result, they, the Galatians, they are sons of God. They have been adopted into the family of God because of what Jesus has done. That's chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And finally, because they are sons and daughters, they are free from their sin. They are free from legalism. They are free from abusing their freedom. Now they are free to love God and free to love others because of what Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. That's what we looked at last week in the opening of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so then we come to our text this morning. And here's what Paul is ultimately getting at. Paul is ultimately getting at this with the Galatians, and in turn, the Spirit of God is getting at this with you and I. Because you are sons and daughters, Christian, because you are sons and daughters, in other words, that is who you are, that is your identity, because you are sons and daughters, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, because the grace of the gospel has taken root in your heart, It is this same gospel, and here's the main idea. It is this same gospel that compels you to live through your adoption, not for your adoption. Say it one more time. It is the grace of this gospel that compels you to live through your adoption, not for your adoption. So let me pray. And then we'll unpack this, uh, this text this morning. Join me in prayer. God, we come to you eager, anticipant, exhausted, and hungry. We come to you this way for the grace of your word. And Lord, if we're honest, sometimes... Your word stings. But may we remember that because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for us. And that it is your kindness, even through a sharp word, that leads us to repentance. For those who know you, Lord, may they remember your grace this morning. May they be captivated by your grace. May they hold tightly to your grace. And for those who don't know you, would you rescue them by your grace today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break up our uh, section into four parts. This should be on the notes online. They may or may not be, whatever. So we're going to break it up into four parts. We're going to look at the tension the works, the fruit, and the crucifixion. You'll see those uh, section titles up on the screen. The tension, the works, the fruit, and the crucifixion.
And so let's consider the tension. This is verses 16 through 18. Paul opens this section with a command and with a promise. Here's what he says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's break that down momentarily. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. This is the command. In light of everything that Paul has already shared from chapters 1 through 4, and as we've begun working our way through chapter 5, he's providing us with practical application in light of what Jesus has done for us. And here he opens with a command, walk by the Spirit. In this section, you're going to notice a couple of things, uh, one of them being that Paul urges similar language to the Galatians. In this section, he'll use phrases like, walk by the Spirit led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And while there are some distinctions, they all share some similar meanings. Nevertheless, what is it that Paul means? What is it that Paul means when he says, walk by the Spirit? Well, the word walk implies a lifestyle that is something that is habitual and ongoing. Additionally, the tense in which this word is written is present tense. It is active In other words, we are progressing as we walk and we keep moving forward, right? So it is habitual. It is a lifestyle. It is active progression. Additionally, Paul says, by the Spirit. What, what, What does that mean? And I think that's one of the questions a lot of people tend to ask me. Like, okay, I get it. Walk. That's habitual. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, bro. What does it mean, though? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, it means to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice through Scripture and prayer to discern his will. Last week, we talked a great deal about discernment. And this was one of the issues that the Galatians were having, that they were unable to discern God's word. So it's to discern the the Spirit's will. It is to follow his guidance and counsel when you are convicted by sin. That is the Holy Spirit doing his job. When he comforts you in light of maybe some hardship or some difficulty, that is the Holy Spirit comforting you. When you are guided to serve someone, to love on someone, man, to do good, as Scripture says, man, that is the Holy Spirit guiding you. We must be sensitive to that. I want you to notice that if the question were, how does one live the Christian life? And how is it that we are to live faithfully? If that was the question, I want you to notice that in no part of this section does Paul ever say, you know what, the answer is your winsome personality. (laughs) If If the question is like, how do you live the Christian life? Paul doesn't say, you know, it's really your charm, right? Paul doesn't say anything like that. But in addition to that, Paul doesn't say a number of things. He doesn't say that the answer is higher education in theology or philosophy or YouTube videos. He doesn't say that it's social activism. He doesn't say that it's a higher concept of spirituality. No. For Paul, the answer is simple. How do we do this? By the Spirit. A scholar, Timothy George, says it this way, only the Spirit of God who has made us free from sin and given us new life in regeneration, that is, our hearts have been regenerated, can keep us truly free as we experience through walking in Him the power of sanctification. Man, the only way in which we grow in our relationship with Jesus, in which we mature, in which we conform into his image, in which we uh, put sin to death, as we'll look at, is going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's answer. And so the first part of verse 16 is the command. Walk by the Spirit. The second part is a promise. That if walking by the Spirit is the command, then the promise is you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, we need to unpack this little phrase, the flesh. You've heard it defined by me uh, a few times and in several different ways. One of those ways that I've defined it has been uh, though we know Jesus and the Spirit dwells in us, the flesh is that internal desire that we have to want to rebel against God, to want to resist God. One pastor said it this way, the flesh is any human action or achievement without dependence on the Holy Spirit and without trusting 
in Jesus Christ. Another said it this way, the flesh was Paul's term for everything aside from God in which one placed his final trust. You see, the flesh isn't simply material and physical. It involves everything. It involves the mind. It involves our will. It involves our emotions. And the promise that Paul makes here is that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not give our flesh satisfaction. But here's the truth, right? Or here's the thing. That's the tension. It's not too hard to break down verse 16 and come to the conclusion of, yes, but there's tension. And that's where we go into verses 17 and 18. Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. They're in opposition. The flesh is in opposition to the Spirit, and the Spirit is in opposition to the flesh. And it's a tension that Paul has written on before. Listen to him in Romans 7, beginning in verse 18. See if you can relate. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Super clear. Paul's ultimately saying the things I should do, I don't. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. I'm sure you can relate to that tension. That tension is real time struggle. That's not some fairy tale, super hyper spiritual thing that you wrestle with in the wilderness. That is real time struggle. Well, why? Why is it real time struggle? Because we are at war. If you didn't know that the Christian life involves spiritual warfare, let me share this very profound thought with you. You are at war. You are at war. One of the loudest places, one of the most explosive places that we come to find ourselves at war in Sunday mornings. Look, like, let's just be real. At the end of the day, when it comes to spiritual warfare, like Satan doesn't want you here. He doesn't like that your Bible is open. He doesn't like that you came to worship God. He doesn't like that you are singing hymns, songs, and spiritual songs to one another, discipling one another, encouraging one another. He doesn't like that you are the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. That's why we gather on Sunday. It is not simply because we are hungry, but it is also because we are at war. He doesn't like that. I don't know your schedule, but he doesn't like that, man, many have to go to bed early on Saturday night so that they can be here at 7 a.m. to get all of this ready. We are at war. You are at war when it comes to scheduling devotional time with your kids or with your spouse or just you creating that time to crack open your Bible and spend time with the Lord. You are at war. And the hard part about what, what, what this tension tells us is Christians don't take war seriously. Christians don't take war seriously. You may not take war seriously. Christians don't take war seriously because they lack discernment. This is what Paul was getting at. In chapter 4, or excuse me, I think it was chapter 3, as he was beginning to unpack by reminding them of their conversion, he's ultimately saying, you lack discernment. You can't tell the difference or make a distinction between what is godly and ungodly. You, you can't make the distinction between what sounds spiritual and what is biblical. They lacked discernment. Christians don't take war seriously because Christians choose complacency. And complacency is one of the biggest threats. It's one of the greatest dangers to the church. Complacency is when we become arrogant about our relationship with Jesus. 
We believe that we're strong enough, that we're uh, not vulnerable, that we know enough. We've heard it all before. We've seen enough. And then what ends up invariably happening is that you get shot. Same scholar, Timothy George, says this. No Christians are so spiritually strong or mature that they need not heed this warning. But neither are any so weak that they cannot be free from the tyranny of the flesh through the power of the Spirit. Why don't we take war seriously? I want you to, we'll pull up Mr. Rogers. We'll wait 10 seconds. It also gives me a time to drink some coffee, right? Here's the question. Why don't you take war seriously? We don't take war seriously because we don't want to struggle. We want our best life now. You see, the tension or opposition between the flesh and the spirit is so real, it's so loud, and it's so intense that in that moment when you face that temptation, you have a choice to make about who you will worship. And this war isn't unique to you. It is not unique to the Galatians. It is not unique to the saints that came before us. And the thing is, Christians will go to great lengths, great disciplinary lengths even, to try and put this war uh, in the sound booth, to try and drown it out, but it keeps coming. I think this might be up on your screen, not sure. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Jerome. He's an early church father from the 4th century. Here's what he says in one of his uh, memoirs as he was writing back to Rome. Oh, how often I imagined that I was in the midst of the pleasures of Rome when I was stationed in the desert, in that solitary wasteland which is so burned up by the heat of the sun that it provides a dreadful habitation for the monks. I, who because of the fear of hell had condemned myself to such a hell and who had nothing but scorpions and wild animals for company, often thought I was dancing in chorus with girls. My face was pale from fasting, but my mind burned with passionate desires within my freezing body and the fires of sex seethed, even though the flesh had already died in me as a man. So homeboy thinks... If I just become uber disciplined, if I just get rid of Rome, if I can run as far and as fast away from Rome, I won't struggle with the sin anymore. I won't have issue with, with ladies. And so he goes the super extreme. He becomes a monk and he goes to the desert far, far away from Rome. And in his memoirs to his friends in Rome, he's ultimately, he is ultimately saying, even though I went to the desert, even though I was by myself, even though scorpions and other animals were like my best friends, the tension still existed. The spirit and my flesh were still in opposition. And I did the things. I became a monk. I fasted. I did whatever it took. And this tension still existed. When it comes to war, we need to understand that we have plenty of fighting to do. There's plenty of fighting to do in the Christian life. An idle Christian is a dangerous Christian to themselves and to others. Paul concludes this by saying that the spirit and the flesh are against one another for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do the things that you want to do those are those are the desires that god has put in you that's what paul is ultimately talking about in romans 7 man the things i ought to do those are the things i want to do but the flesh keeps me from doing them and he concludes if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law being led by the Spirit means that we are no longer condemned by the law, but it does mean that we are free to obey God. We are free to obey God because we belong to Him, not so that we would belong to Him. 
That is why we're, that's what we have been, been freed from. It's not just freed from our sin, but we have been freed to obey God, freed to love God. You belong to him right now, present tense. You belong to him. Being led by the Spirit means that we are now able, we are capable, and we are empowered to crucify the flesh and bear the fruit of holiness. So let us now consider the works. This is verses 19 through 21. It's at this point where Paul provides us with a list, a list of sins, he calls them the works of the flesh. But before we dive into them, right, we need to note three important things. Okay, just bear with me. The first one is, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's not an exhaustive list. Paul concludes, I think it's in verse 21, he concludes the end of it. So he says, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul is saying, I could keep going on and on and on. That's not the purpose of this. It's also as if he is saying, not the agas, bro. Don't look at this list and be like, oh yeah, I don't struggle with any of these. I must be good. He's like, not the agas. We, we can keep going. Okay. This is not an exhaustive list, nor is it selective. Therefore, Christian, all right, before we dive into this, hear me out. You need to guard yourself right now. You need to guard yourself against legalism. You're going to have a propensity to want to read this list and be like, oh, that's not me. That's not me. I didn't do that. I haven't done that in 10 years. I haven't done that in 60 days. That's called legalism, right? And you're part of the problem. <laughs> or when it comes to licensing, you're going to want to justify some of them. Well, it wasn't that bad. Could it really not be that bad? I thought God was all forgiving. Isn't God love? Yes, and he is also uh, righteous, true, and judge. Don't forget that. Second, the works of the flesh, when Paul begins to unpack this, the works of the flesh is plural. In a moment, we're going to get to the fruit. The fruit is singular. So it's not just this contrast. Third, only those redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus, can bear the fruit of the Spirit. And there's no condemnation for you. You're going to read through this, and you're like, man, I failed in this this week. I dropped the ball on that yesterday. I did the thing I said I wouldn't do again. There is no condemnation for those inside of Christ Jesus. So remember that going into this list. Okay? So, you guys ready? No one is. Here we go. We're going to break this down into four categories, right? So you're going to, I don't think they're going to be up on the screen. I think maybe just the verses are, but uh, we're going to break this out into four categories. We're going to look at sexual passions, spirituality, animosity, and drunkenness, okay? So let's begin with the first one, sexual passions. This involves sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, right? One of the questions that I often get, one of the questions that you may even, even have is, why is sexual immorality or sexual passions such a priority in the Bible? Why are they always kind of listed at the top? I want you to consider even what Jesus says in Mark 7. He goes on to say, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, that is out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and he lists several others. But you notice that at the top of the list is sexual immorality. And so one of the questions is, man, why is it at the top of the list? Paul uh, creates similar lists to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, and it is up there. So why is it such a priority? Here's my take on this. It's such a priority because when it comes to sexual passions, let's call it that. When it comes to sexual passions, it's such a priority because they display more graphically the self-centeredness of man and rebellion against God. Not that the others don't, but when it comes to sexual immorality, it displays more graphically the self-centeredness of man and rebellion against God. For believers who are in sexual sin, you need to know it deeply grieves the Holy Spirit. 
sexual sin under the banner of love is really just selfish desires satisfied. And it is in complete opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. So under sexual passions, Paul gives us three things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. When it comes to sexual immorality, the the Greek word here is porneia. This is where we get the word pornography. But it's much more than simply pornography. It is, uh, in its use, it's more of a junk drawer term for all of sexual immorality. Yeah, it includes looking at porn, sex outside of marriage, sex in addition to marriage, uh, homosexuality. Uh, It involves fornication. Man, you keep stacking it up. All of that is put in this, quote, junk drawer that is sexual immorality. So it's not just this one thing. When it comes to impurity, it's not just sexual sin, but it is a willingly, it is a willingness to engage in sexual sin and to separate ourselves from God. When it comes to sensuality, one uh, scholar says it this way. It's not up on the screen, so just listen to me. One uh, author says it this way about sensuality, that this word is a love of sin so reckless and so audacious that man has ceased to care what God or man thinks of his actions. That when it comes to sensuality, that you have lost total restraint, total decency. You have lost all self-control. That is the category that is sexual passions. Next, we go into spirituality. It's really just two things here. It's idolatry and sorcery. That the idea behind spirituality, it's become very, very popular among Christians. And you can look up a ton of stuff online when it comes to spirituality. And the reason it's become so popular among Christians is because so many Christians want to gain higher degrees of enlightenment or simply be closer to God. The problem with a lot of this, the problem even with some of these intense forms of disciplines, it's something that we actually covered in Colossians in the spring, but the problem with such intense forms of spirituality is that it doesn't produce godliness and the tension still exists. So what do you do with it? It's exactly what Jerome was trying to do. He was trying to drown it by being super disciplined, by pursuing higher forms of spirituality and higher forms of discipline. It doesn't work. It doesn't put the flesh to death. And so when Paul mentions idolatry, yeah, he's talking about worshiping created things over the creator. When he's talking about sorcery, yes, he's talking about witchcraft, but he's talking about much more than witchcraft. When it comes to sorcery, this is where we get the word uh, pharmaceutical from. He's talking about substance abuse specifically. When people in Galatia, you would kind of trippy, right? It's first century and they're popping pills so that they would either find some other kind of like euphoria or so that they would drown out some of the things that they were already experiencing. So essentially, when it comes to addiction, it is the worship of created things over the creator. In the pursuit of idolatry and spirituality, and it is trying to drown out the tension that simply cannot be put to death by your discipline, only by the Spirit. The next one is the longest one. It's an animosity, right? Animosity deals specifically with relationships and friendships. Paul uses a similar word to animosity in Romans 8. Here's what he says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here he's talking specifically about one's relationship with God, that if one doesn't know Jesus, you're actually hostile to God. And now he uses a similar word, or I'm taking a similar word and applying it to Galatians because the context here is relationships, friendships. There's animosity, and he provides eight of them. The first one is enmity. And actually, let me back up. Here's what you need to know about animosity. Here's what you need to know about hostility toward one another. It tears down community life. It destroys churches. It wrecks relationships. It wreaks havoc among families. And so the first one he says is enmity. You know what enmity is? That is hatred. That is a desire to hate people. Strife, that is an individual who 
genuinely desires the worst on people. Ill-willed, you could say it that way. Jealousy. It's an individual who hates that they don't have what other people have. And when it comes to gifts, when it comes to things that the Lord has blessed you with, man, you just want to chunk that out the window because you're jelly. <laughs> Next one is bits of anger. The Bible says a lot about anger. On several occasions, uh, it is clear that God says you're going to get angry. All right, Psalm 4, be angry. Semicolon, and do not sin. It's the other part. When it comes to anger, it is the, uh, the, the, what many call the moral emotion. It is the emotion that communicates, I am against blank. Right or wrong, that's what it communicates. But when Paul is talking about bits of anger, he's talking about an individual who has lost all self-control. It's not just angry, but they have rage in them. And as they respond in anger toward people, toward others, it actually drags them away from their fellowship with God and actually entangles them further in the works of the flesh. He mentions rivalries. That is selfish ambitions. You're out to get yours. Dissensions. That is individuals in the church who genuinely, which is weird, I mean that in the negative sense, genuinely want to see the unity of the church fractured. And it's different than divisions. Divisions is when you have beef with someone in the church and you choose to walk in pride so as to not address it. That's division. Dissension is when you're cool seeing the unity of the church of the body fractured. Division is when you choose to walk in your pride rather than reconcile, have a conversation. And then he ends with envy. Similar to jealousy, but it just manifests itself differently. Next category is drunkenness. And he gives two things, drunkenness and orgies. This section, these two, is literally just about the loss of absolute control. That these two are incompatible with Christian commitment. That when it comes to orgies, it's not just sex parties, but it is deep dive into a loveless life filled with depravity. That when it comes to drunkenness, look, I'm, I'm saying it right now, right? It's cool, man, if you like to have your two to three beers. There, I said it, okay? Cool. And what he is talking about is drunkenness. When it comes to drunkenness, in other words, moderation is out the door. There is no such thing as sound judgment. Physically, you can't walk straight. You can't think clearly. You're clouded in your judgment. Spiritually, it's the same thing. You are not sober-minded. You are unable to walk by the Spirit or to keep in step with the Spirit. That's what drunkenness is. And if you notice, when it comes to this list, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so he gets down to verse 21. He says, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's talk about that for a little bit. This list, while not exhaustive, is also not surprising. It's not surprising to the Galatians. He just said, I've warned you before. That could be when he planted them. So I've told you this before. We've talked about these things before. So here, in essence, Paul is holding them accountable to what they say the, they believe. He's holding them accountable. And it's not a surprise to the Galatians. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. And so the warning, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Man, it puts some burden on you maybe. You might even be thinking, like, am I a total loss then? Like, I just screwed up in like six of those. Am I a total loss? Paul is not issuing this warning to the Galatians and to us to instill utter despair. That's not his purpose. 
Rather, Paul puts this list in front of us so that we would be grieved by sin. And in that grief, that we would be led by the Spirit to repent and put sin to death. And so when you read that statement, I want you to know two things. The first, Paul isn't talking to repentant Christians. And if you fell, if you stumbled in these this week, man, you're trying to stumble forward. It feels like you're crawling. Man, I want you to know there's no condemnation for you. That God's grace is still pouring out over you even right now. That for the Christian who is repenting and turning to Jesus and putting their trust in Christ, and I'm just trying to get through it, man, there is grace for you. There is grace on you. You have not been forsaken. So Paul isn't talking to repentant Christians. Paul is talking to those who are slaves to the flesh. He's not talking to sons or daughters. He's talking to slaves. Those who are enslaved to the works of the flesh. Some of you think you're a Christian, but you may not be. You may not be if there is no repentance. You may not be if there is no fruit. You may not be if there is no transformation. I didn't ask you if you grew up in the church. I didn't ask you what you memorized at VBS. The Christian isn't better. The Christian is repentant. Those who walk by the Spirit put sin to death and turn toward Jesus. Those who don't are enslaved to the works of the flesh. So now let us consider the fruit. This is verses 22 to 23. If the works of the flesh could be called a category or a catalog of depravity, then the fruit of the Spirit can be called a category of grace. Paul provides nine graces that are rolled up, like fruit roll-ups, <laughs> that are rolled up into the fruit of the Spirit. And once more, it's singular. It's one. It's one thing. It's one fruit. So much like uh, the works of the flesh, there's a couple of things to consider here. Number one, this isn't a checkbox. You are still guarding your heart right now. This is not a checkbox. These graces are cyclical, which leads us to the second thing, that these graces are graces that we are growing in. These are graces that God is uh, cultivating in us, that we are producing, that we are trusting in God to walk in. It is part of our sanctification. These graces deal with our heart that has been redeemed and is being sanctified by the same grace that saved us. Much like the works of the flesh, there are some categories here. It's our attitude toward God, our attitude towards others, and our attitude towards ourselves. So let's dive in. Attitude toward God. We have love, joy, and peace. Man, those are wonderful. I want to just stay there for a little bit. That when it comes to love, you, are, you have been made, you have been freed from your sin and freed to love God. How is this possible? Because God gave himself for you in Christ. The Apostle John talks about it in 1 John 4. That we are able to love because we were first loved by Christ. You are free to love you are able to love God and others even though they may not love you back. You are able to cultivate joy because you know God and you are known by God. And so cultivating joy is something that we pursue in spite of our circumstances. There's nothing wrong with being happy, but that's circumstantial. Peace you are no longer at war with God. At one point, you were an enemy. Listen to me, Christian, like sit in that for a little bit. At one, none of us started off as a Christian. None of us. At one point, we were at war with God. 
We were orphaned. We were at enmity with him. We hated God. We were hostile to God. But now in Christ, we have peace with God. We are no longer at war. Instead, we are welcomed. We are no longer orphaned. Instead, we are adopted. Attitude towards others. Patience, kindness, goodness. The word patience uh, really means long-suffering. Right? But again, all of this stems back to our relationship with God first and our attitude towards God first. So before you start thinking about, oh, I'm just not so patient with other people, I want you to think about your life before Christ and how patient he was in his pursuit of you. Now I want you to think about your life in Christ and how patient he is in pursuit of you. Then stop. The Old Testament calls that steadfast love, that he's patient. And so this is our attitude toward others. So this is something that we are cultivating. This is one of the things that, uh, one of the graces where it means to walk by the Spirit. Man, how do we know that we are in step with the Spirit? Man, we are patient with our brothers and sisters. Then when it comes to kindness, I want you to know that kindness here doesn't mean sentimentality. It doesn't just mean being kind and courteous, although that's part of it. But throughout the scripture, sometimes Paul talks about God's kindness in a sharp and firm word. In other words, kindness means pursuing. When you're pursuing someone to repent because you see uh, the sin that they might find themselves in and you're pursuing them and you're calling them to repentance and you're trying to point them to Jesus and you're trying to tell them all about Jesus, whether they know him or not, and you're reminding them you are plunging yourself into the mess that is their life. You are snatching them out of the fire that is their sin. That's kindness. It's not just courtesy. It is pursuit. Elsewhere, Paul writes, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He says goodness. The word for goodness is integrity. You are the same way everywhere you are. You're not compartmentalized. You're not a chameleon. You are a person, a man or a woman of integrity. The way in which you are at home, the way in which you are in the office, the way in which you are with your friends, at school, with your Christian friends, with your non-Christian friends, you're a man or a woman of integrity. The next one is attitude towards ourselves. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness is a commitment to the gospel. I want you to stumble forward. If you're going to stumble, you're going to stumble forward as you are faithfully committed to the gospel trying to knead that gospel in the crevices of your heart daily. When it comes to gentleness, this is uh, strength under control. Not pushy, not imposing your will, but strength under control. And finally, self-control. Mastery over desires and passion. Paul, elsewhere to Timothy, talks about how the athlete endures strict training so that they would be disciplined to exercise self-control, to know when to put it into gear and to know when to not put it into gear. Paul ultimately says that a Christian without self-control is like a boxer who fights the air and never lands a blow. And it's interesting that self-control is the last one. So when it comes to these graces, perhaps it is the foundation upon which these stand on. Perhaps. The fruit of the Spirit is the grace of God in the Christian. It is the grace of God sanctifying the Christian. And it is the grace of God poured out through the Christian. And so finally we come to the crucifixion. Verses 24 to 26. Paul writes, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That word crucified, all right, he's talking about what Jesus has done for us, and the word also carries implication as we move forward. Okay. Continuing in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That phrase, keep in step with the Spirit, is putting one foot in front of the other. It's a military term, putting one foot in front of the other. Many of you have read, heard uh, Luke 9. Pick up your cross daily. If you want to follow Jesus, pick up your cross and follow him daily, right? Yes? All right, cool. I'm going to say something. It's going to be crazy. Oh my gosh, I'm scared. 
It is not enough to simply say, pick up your cross daily. We must see our sin executed. Otherwise, you're just going to be picking up and walking that cross like the whole time. We must see that our sin is executed daily. As often as we pick up that cross, we are seeing our sin executed, crucified, mortified, put to death daily. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're just showing off your cross? Well, look at the sins that I'm not struggling with. Like, that's the problem. When it comes to that word crucified, once more, Paul is referring to something that Jesus has done for us on our behalf. That he lived a righteous life in our place, that he died a death on the cross in our place and for our sin. And as a result, that work has implications for us now that we belong to God. And the implication is that because the Spirit resides in you and I, we can crucify those passions. We can put to death our desires. We can kill our sin because the Spirit resides in us. And it is a daily battle. So because the Spirit resides in the Christian, a couple of things. Some of these might be practical. Number one, uh, obedience is a visible response to His work. Because the Spirit resides in you, you are free to obey God. You are able to obey God. And it is a visible response to His work in you. As a result, you are free to love one another. Look at verse 26. He opens by saying, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He is talking specifically, directly to the Galatians, not just an individual. Likewise, the Spirit of God is speaking to us as a church, as a congregation. Let us not become conceited. Rather than conceited, let us serve one another. Rather than provoking one another, let us live humbly with one another. Rather uh, than envying one another, let us rejoice with one another. We are capable of doing these things because the Spirit of God resides in us. We are free to love God. We are free to love one another. Because the Spirit resides in you, you can crucify your flesh daily. And it's an ongoing process. Let me just tell you that. I'm not saying, I'm not up here as an expert. Right? It is an ongoing, daily, lifelong process. Here's the best way that I could just hammer that. It is through the Puritan John Owen who said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. To crucify the flesh. To crucify the flesh is to say, Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this one thing and that if I don't have this one thing, I am of no value. Crucifying the flesh is remembering what Jesus has done, what Jesus thinks of you until that desire is put to death. Because the Spirit resides in you, we can conform to the image of Christ. That is, that we become more and more like Jesus. When you read through the works of the flesh, even the fruit of the Spirit, and sometimes there's still burden, there's still some of that, let me encourage you with, with two, maybe three things. The first one is get in community with one another. Here's the question. Do you have friends in the church? Friends that, yes, some of you might say, well, I confess my sin to the Lord. Yeah, great. Keep doing that. I'm not knocking that. You should. You need to. Yes. Do you confess your sins to one another? And as a result, are you being held accountable? I mean, that's one of the things Paul is saying. Hey, I've warned you about this before. Now, accountability is, a, is an interesting thing. A lot of churches talk so much about accountability. Let me, let, me, let me say this. Accountability is a byproduct of confession of sin. So if you're not confessing sin, then yeah, you're not being held accountable. Like, not that, like you know. You know what I'm saying? And in addition to that, most Christians know what accountability is. They just don't like being held accountable. And that might be you. And so let me invite you to repent. Because you're denying, man, others helping you, coming alongside you, discipling you. Or other people don't like accountability because they put the ownership on the other person. Well, I've confessed my sin to this other person and they haven't reached out and they haven't talked to me. And so clearly the reason I sinned is because of them. That's their fault. 
But you laugh. But that's the thing about the Christian culture. Like some of you knock other people because they didn't follow up with you last week. As if you don't have a phone or Facebook or text message or you can't walk to their house and say, hey man, this is what's up. So don't knock it. Next is, because the Spirit of God resides in you, repentance is a grace to be embraced. Did you know that? Did you know that repentance is a grace? That because you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you can turn to Jesus. You don't have to beat yourself up. You can turn to Jesus. There is grace to be given. The fact that you're able to is a grace. And then when you do, there's more grace. And then as you keep doing it, there's more grace. And as you're turning, there's grace. Grace continually abounding over you as you are turning to the Lord Jesus daily. The German reformer Martin Luther Marty Loons, here's what he says. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And finally, because the Spirit of God resides in you, Christian, you can live through your adoption, not for your adoption. Okay? All of this that we just talked about, all of this is possible. All of it is possible. I'm going to tell you this. All of it is possible. You are capable. You are empowered by the Spirit because you are sons and daughters. You belong to God. You have received Jesus by grace through faith. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You belong to God. You are sons and daughters. You have been declared righteous. That is for you. No one can take that away from you. Grace covers you. Grace is at work in you. You can do this. And so as you move forward, as you keep in step with the Spirit, remember the fruit of the Spirit. Trust in the promises of God. And remember that God has always provided and always does provide a way out of temptation. Even if you look foolish, the question isn't about how you look. The question is whether or not there's a way out, and there is. Gospel accountability exists because, man, we are fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus, turning our eyes to the Lord Jesus, inviting brothers and sisters into this frail walk that we have so that they would encourage us, and by grace, we would encourage one another to continue to pursue Jesus because for freedom, Christ has set us free free. Keep going. Keep going. We must not simply pick up our cross daily. We must also see to it that our sin is executed too. Keep going. You can do this. Keep going. You're either crawling, and you might feel like that, right? Let me encourage you. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Invite others. Keep going. Some of you may be running. We talked about this last week. I hate running. It's dumb. Why? Because you can't sustain a run forever. You can't sustain a run forever. But what can you do? What can you do? You can walk. You can walk by the Spirit. You can live by the Spirit. You can keep in step with the Spirit. That's what Paul says in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So Christian, let me invite you to examine your character. Let me invite you to examine your character and ask the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction. When you read through that, man, if you're convicted of that, man, I pray that that would lead you to repentance. But I also pray that it wouldn't just stay there. I pray that you wouldn't just stay there. I pray that as you repent, you would also sit in the fruit of the Spirit. That you would ask God to help you cultivate this fruit more and more in your life. That you would walk in step with the Spirit. That you would be on guard. That you would meditate on the fruit. That you would crucify the flesh. And that you would desire to be transformed in every area of your life. 
So let me invite you to examine your character. Let me invite you to repent. Let me invite you to sit and reflect and meditate on the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not a Christian, I am honored that you are here. It's a big deal. Man, and I love you too much not to tell you this. You are enslaved. You are enslaved to what Paul calls the works of the flesh. That even in spite of the good, even in spite of the discipline, you cannot please God for your mind is hostile toward God. However, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus invites you to come to know him through faith and repentance. That you would turn from your sin and turn toward Jesus and put your trust in Jesus so that you may walk by the Spirit and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit as you pursue holiness. Church, the grace of the gospel of Jesus compels us to live through our adoption, but not for our adoption. Let's pray. Father, before you, we want to be simple. (laughs) We want to be humble. And before you, we ask, would you be merciful and forgive us of our sin, Lord? Would you cleanse us of our unrighteousness? Would you heal our hurts? Would you help us to reconcile broken relationships? God, before You, we ask that You would pour Your Spirit upon us with renewing grace, that You would restore us to the joy of our salvation, that You would forgive our excessiveness, that You would forgive our ingratitude, and that You would humble our hearts this morning. God, by your grace, I, I, I pray that we don't look at the, the, the fruit of the Spirit as, as a burden to try and carry out, but as a blessing that you have given us by your grace. Therefore, Lord, may we be a people who drink from the well of your grace. May we walk in step with the Spirit because of Jesus' work for us, because we belong to you, Father. You call us sons and daughters, and no one can take that away from us. May the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.